Welcome to the To Faithful Men podcast. This project started in 2006 to preserve old sermon and study tapes of Wiley Flanagan, Hassel Wallace, and Mike Strevel. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Let's continue this morning in our study of the parables. And that will take us to the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 16. There are two parables in this chapter, both of which deal in some regard to to money and the handling of money. I'm going to take the latter one first. Um, I guess I ought to just be humble enough to... Admit, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure I know what the first one's talking about. Um, of course, I'm probably not 100% sure I know what the second one's talking about, but, uh, the first parable here in this, in the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, uh, ends with an, an amazing moral that there's been a lot of discussion about, um, the parable of the steward who was about to be kicked out of his place and and so he rushed to to the his master's uh, debtors and urged them to pay less than what they owed him and the the master was pleased commended him for what he'd done the moral of the story was make friends of rich people so that when you have great need, you'll have somebody to turn to. Well, um, there's that's that's an interesting interesting parable, and um, there's something I'm kind of thinking about asking the church to consider that may uh, be a better time to introduce that that parable. And if I don't ask the church to consider this, I'll preach on it one of these days. I hope. But let's go to the second one here, and the two parables kind of flow together contextually with the basic thought that, um, well, we'll summarize it in verse 10. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. Now, we need to stop here and notice that in the context, that which is least is money. Now, very often, we put money in a little bit higher place than that, but in, in the economy of God, money's the least. If one is not faithful in the least of things, that is, the money, whatever money comes into your hands, well, he says, how will he entrust to us the true riches? And so, that introduction is made to this, this uh, parable of the rich man and Lazarus. He also tells us that no man can serve two masters. Repeating that which is in the Sermon on the Mount, commonly referred to, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. So, when we think of the least being money, obviously the greatest is God. The things of the kingdom, the spiritual things to which God has 
with which God has entrusted us. And God has entrusted you and me with some money. You and I have some money. And we trust that God has entrusted us with more important things. The kingdom of God. The things of the kingdom. The glory of the kingdom. Yea, the honor of the king himself. Those are the true riches. And if we are not able to handle the the uh, least of things, natural riches, money, how can we serve in that which is really important? And then he says this, and then it says this after he said that in verse 13, And the Pharisees also who were covetous heard all these things, and they derided him. Some of the modern translations use the word, which is probably quite appropriate. They sneered at him. Jesus said, you can't serve God in money. You'll, you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll despise one and hold it. You cannot do that. And, and they derided him. They sneered at him. Huh. Now, they sneered at him because they were of the wealthier class. They had, they had position, and they also had possessions. So they sneered at Jesus. And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. Highly esteemed among men is, is the things that men pursue in life. Fame, fortune, uh, prestige. All of those things that are important to the natural man are the things that are abomination in the sight of God. That is, they are an abomination if that is the goal of our lives. Now, he says this, The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presses into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. God is saying here that there's about to be a change, a, a significant change. The law and the prophets were until John. But now the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presses into it. Well, let's, let's stop and admire this flower for a moment before we move on. I love, I love the word here because it's, it's very uh, indicative of its usage in the Scriptures. He says, every man presses into it. This is the exact same word that is translated every man in Hebrews 2 where it said that Jesus Christ, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. And there are those who would have us to believe that every man there is every individual member of the human race. But that is no more every individual member of the human race than this is every individual member of the human race. For indeed, every man was not pressing into the kingdom of God then, nor in any other age, nor yet today. Is every individual member of the human race pressing into the kingdom of God? He's saying here, every kind of man. There's going to be a change here. The law and the prophets were until John, but now the kingdom of God. And now the Gentiles are going to be brought into relation with God. This is a constant theme throughout the Testament. We miss great theological truth if we don't, don't understand that. Well, we'll pass from that and we'll take a look at the parable. Some people have trouble calling this a parable. Because the Bible doesn't specifically call it a parable. But it doesn't call the first one in chapter 16 a parable either. Um, a parable is, is a story that Jesus told to make a point. And this is a story that Jesus told to make a point. It may be a true story. Jesus may be drawing from a true uh, story. This may be a real example. 
And the difference, the significant difference in this story than many of the others, most all of the others for that matter, is that this is the only one in which someone is given a name. And the only one given a name in this is the poor man. Lazarus is given a name. So let's read the, let's read the story here. Perhaps a parable. Doesn't matter whether it is exactly a parable or not. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple, fine linen, fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate, full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died, and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou hast... Thou in thy lifetime received thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that they may testify unto them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto him from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. <clears throat> well, we had before us here a, at once a sobering parable, but also one which should be the cause of some rejoicing in our hearts. Here is compared and contrasted two men, one rich, one poor. Now, the rich man fared sumptuously every day. The poor man was laid at the rich man's gate, who is sometimes called dives. You may see that occasionally come through. It comes from the Latin translation of the Bible, which one of these words here described last, the uh, rich man is given to him as a name. So you hear the word dives. That's what he is. the rich man is often called. He fared sumptuously every day. The poor man, Lazarus, um, his, his description is one of, a pitiful condition. And he was laid. That is, he someone brought him. He was not able to, even under his own power, come to the gate of the rich man. And he lay there and hoped that he would be able to eat some of the scraps that they threw out from the rich man's house. And the dogs came and, and licked his wounds. There seems to be some mercy in that seemingly gross scene there of dogs licking the sore places on someone, there actually seems to be some healing 
of benefits from that, as dogs do to themselves if they're hurt. Um, matter of fact, we're not averse to doing that to ourselves when we are hurt. You cut your finger, your first instinct is to stick it in your mouth and, well, whatever. Um, and maybe that was uh, before the days of uh, antibiotics or creams or bacteria, or what do they call us? Anyway, um, here we have contrasted two very different people. Now, there's a moral to this story that we must we must receive here, even though also in the sense in which this is not following the common form of a parable, there is no moral drawn for us. Um, one is left to to make his own moral from this, as opposed to others of the parables, not all of them, but many of them, in which the moral is drawn for us. Now, first of all, I think we need to consider this truth, that the parable is not telling us that poor people go to heaven and rich people go to hell. That's that's not what this parable is telling us. For indeed, into whose bosom did Lazarus go? He went into the bosom of one of the richest men who ever lived on the earth, Abraham, who was an extremely wealthy man. So we're not talking about rich and poor, precisely, because there are rich people, I'm sure, who go to heaven. And there are poor people, I'm sure, who go to hell. Solomon said wisely, when he, in his prayer to God, he said, Lord, bless me not to have so much that I would forget you, but please help me not to ever have so little that I might be tempted to dishonor you and steal. And so we're not talking about rich and poor. We're not, we're not setting class against class here. But I think what we are looking at here is something that all of us need to consider, especially we Americans, because all of us, relatively, would be more apt to fit into the class of Dives than into the class of Lazarus. We would, we would come closer to the rich man than we would to the poor man. Every one of us, basically, fares sumptuously every day. I mean, look at us. We're all well fed. Um, we sat in our house last night and a cold rain fell on us and we sat in front of our artificial fire. And um, in our family worship, I thank God that we had a warm, dry place to be. We have plenty of food to eat, nice clothes to wear. And so we, we fare sumptuously every day. Well, there's no sin in faring sumptuously. That cannot be the point of this parable. Although the Bible does tell us very plainly that they who want to be rich, those who strive to be rich, fall into many testings and trials and that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So while each of us fits more into the category of the rich man than, than the poor man, we need to take heed to what must be the moral of this story, although the moral is not drawn for us. Now, it is important to notice here that Lazarus was not just a poor man in town. Here's a rich man in town, a poor man in town. No, Lazarus was brought to the rich, this rich man, this particular rich man's gate every day. He, lay, he was laid. Someone put him there. 
And he hoped to eat the, the scraps, the table scraps of the rich man. And his only uh, medicinal uh, properties that he enjoyed was the dogs who came and licked the sores on his body. And so there's got to be something here more poignant than just the rich and poor, and that is this. The rich man's sin was not that he had money. His sin was that he did not relieve the poor with the money that he had. He did not help the poor. He had no compassion on the poor. He gave little, if any, thought to the fact that even though he fared sumptuously every day, and this this man in the context was probably a Pharisee because um, that's who he's going on with. Remember the Pharisees sneered at him before this parable is told. And this Pharisees were religious people. Once again, we, we find ourselves a little more aligned with the Pharisees in that we, we are religious people. And there's nothing evil in that, of course. It's desirable. So here we are in America, and here we are, each of us individually, and what do we do with what we have? Now, I don't believe there's any condemnation of the rich man who fared sumptuously every day. Abraham fared sumptuously every day. The sin lay, undoubtedly, in the fact that his, his heart of compassion was shut up against this very man who lay right at his gate. You know, we have been blessed with some wonderful opportunities as a church in in the last ten years, particularly with the uh, evangelistic works that are being done in in foreign countries. And um, I read I read Brother Gus Harder's newsletter just yesterday. It came in the mail and. I read it with great joy and great conviction. And uh, <clears throat> when I saw not only is, is the gospel prospering in that land, churches are being established, people are being brought to the truth, uh, people are rejoicing in, in the wonderful doctrine of the grace, sovereign grace of God such as we love here in America, and God is blessing us to have some part in that. Not only is that taking place, but also there are great acts of mercy taking place in in the the uh, benevolent works that especially Sister Betty Joe is, is involved with in, in the clinic there. And then, of course, we have personal knowledge of, of the work in, in India with Brother Guna and the work with the orphanages there. And we remember the words of, of the Lord, uh, of, of James, the Lord, uh, through James, that uh, pure religion and undefiled before God the Father is this, to keep yourself unspotted from the world, to visit the widows and orphans in their affliction. We have had, we have had personal, excellent opportunities to actually alleviate the suffering of some person on this planet. I've been all over, I've been all over America. And, and I've never encountered, uh, beggars such as you encounter everywhere in the third world countries. I've never, in, in all of my travelings all, all over America, I have never seen one child living in the street. One child eating out of the gutter. I've never seen that. 
But you go into these third world countries like the Philippines or Kenya or India, it's as common as dirt to see children and, and, and women, often women and old people, uh, scrounging through piles of trash and, and begging and stealing and doing whatever they possibly can to, to get a little crust of bread. Indeed, they, they do eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And God has blessed us with wonderful, excellent opportunities to, to do that. And, and I would, I would say this. If, if you have not personally availed yourself of, of the blessing of sponsoring one of these orphans or, or one of these works, I, I, I hope that you would be so convicted of that today that you would take that up immediately. Because here we fare sumptuously every day. And there are people whose, whose suffering and whose poverty we can alleviate. Now, the problem with all of that is that Christianity at large has tended to, to narrow the whole scope of evangelism to personal benevolence. And let me tell you, that's not the great purpose of the gospel. The great purpose of the gospel is to feed men's souls. is to bring the truth, Jesus Christ, to a dying world. That's the great purpose of the gospel. And it is to bring these eternal truths to them that God has primarily sent us. But in doing of that, all throughout the Scriptures, we read of people who, who are mindful of the poor. We're taught in Acts chapter 15 where they were having this huge controversy over the place of circumcision and works and salvation. And, and they narrowed it down to, to this. Peter said, we believe that by the grace of God we're saved even as they, but we do call on men to do some simple things. Some things that were very important to their Jewish sensitivities. That is that you abstain from fornication, sexual immorality, and from blood. Don't, don't eat any blood. Now that, that just, you know, that just was too much for them. You can't eat a rare steak. You've got to make sure it's cooked from things strangled from blood. And to remember the poor. Always remember the poor. These things were kind of fundamental, essential elements of gospel life. And so we today have this blessing of, of being able to share our material wealth. And, you know, like the thing in, in, in India, $25 a month. You know, to those of us who fare sumptuously every day, that's not much. Matter of fact, it's very little. And it ought to be more to us than just appeasing our consciences. It, it ought to be something that we, every one of us do with an eye to the glory of God. Every, every time that we give to some evangelistic work, and this church has been generous, and, and you as individuals have been generous to, to support the work of the spread of the gospel, and, and to spread the work of, of, uh, of building churches, and, and those things are also important. I've, I put on my computer in the office back there, uh, uh, on my wallpaper, they call it, a picture that was sent to me from Africa. You know, the money that we recently sent to Nairobi. They have bought this little piece of property, and the picture is of them erecting a structure on it. A structure which you and I would, would uh, despise in, for its simplicity and its, and its, uh, crudeness. Uh, but yet to them represents a, a respectable place to worship. You know, if we shut up our bowels of compassion 
towards those people and people like that. I, I cannot but believe but that this parable is speaking words to us of, of somber seriousness. And to America, I'm, I'm thankful that our people, the primitive Baptists, as we are known among ourselves and to the world, have, have risen up to, to really meet this challenge of, of evangelism and the spread of the gospel and, and, and to the relieving of the, even the material needs of people in foreign lands. I fear sometimes lest we would be too much of, of the benevolence and, and too little of the gospel. But it should not, it should be balanced in both. And so, this poor man was laid daily at his gate. The implication, of course, is that the rich man did nothing to alleviate his suffering. Did not give him any food, just the table scraps. Afforded him no medical attention or comfort. And so, they both died. Now, we ought to consider that this life is transient. It is passing away. It is short. And every one of us is going to die. And I wonder if it could not properly be said that what we did with our money is probably the most truly indicative aspect of our spiritual well-being, what we did with our money. That we, not that we made it, not that you know, I've told you I've come back from these third world countries determined not to make anybody feel guilty for having anything. But what we do with our money, are we generous? Are we faithful, even here in this church, to, to, to give, to support the church financially as our covenant tells us to with our tithes and our offerings? When special things come up, are we willing to willing to make even some sacrifices to do the special things that, that come along our way. You know, I would think that what we do with our money might be the most clear indication of really the condition of our hearts. It was of Lazarus's. It was, it, I mean, of the rich man's. It was indicative of his, of his heart. And he was called to task for it, not in this life. He fared sumptuously till the day he died. Lazarus fared ill until the day he died. But then they both did die and Lazarus was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. I believe that this is what is called paradise. Remember Jesus when he hung on the cross said to the thief who said, Lord, remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom said, this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. And so the Bible tells us that when Jesus died, his soul descended into Hades. And that is the word hell here in our passage. That word hell is used one time. It's the word Hades. You, some of you who were here three or four years ago may remember I did a kind of an extensive study on, on the subject of hell. What the Bible says about, about hell. And 
And I'll just give a short version here that it seems to be that before the Lord Jesus actually made his sacrifice at Calvary, that when every man died, whether he was a child of God or not, his soul went into Hades. That is simply the place of departed spirits. But those who, who, who were believers, those who were chosen by God, those who were, who were his people, they went into paradise. Those who were not went into what is commonly referred to in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament as Sheol, that is the place of torment. There's two words that's translated hell in the New Testament, Hades and Sheol. Hades is simply the place of departed spirits. That's where everybody went when they died before Jesus made his sacrifice. Everybody went to the place of departed spirits. Uh, some went into Abraham's bosom. That is, to paradise. Some went to, to Sheol, this place of torment. And that's where uh, died finds himself. He is in he is in this place of torment. And he can see across this chasm. He can see paradise. Oh, what a what a terrible thing it must have been. Not just to have been in torment. Not just to have been in these flames that were tormenting him continually. But to be able to even see across this chasm those who were in paradise, enjoying the blessings of of of, uh, of life with with uh, the Lord not quite yet with him, in Abraham's bosom, in paradise, as it was called. And, and then, of course, in, in the fourth chapter of the book of, of uh, Ephesians, after Peter tells us that when Jesus died, his soul descended into Hades, that is the place of departed spirits, and there he preached to the spirits in prison, which I believe he preached to the souls in paradise. And he told them of his work and of, of what he had accomplished. And so it says in Ephesians 4 that when he ascended up on high, he led captives in his train. And so here was this whole entourage when Christ ascended up. Here's this whole entourage that accompanied him into the very presence of God. And so it is said in the New Testament, after the death of Christ, that those who die in faith, those who long for His coming, those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, those who were chosen by God in Christ before the foundation of the world, that they go into the presence of God Himself. Because the sacrifice has been made. Our souls no longer go into this place, Hades. It's still there. And the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that finally and fully, that death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire that burns forever. Now, we have before us here not only a contrast of rich men and poor men who lived in this world, not only of those who shut up their bowels of compassion like the rich man, but those who opened their bowels of compassion like Abraham, who had money and used it well to the glory of God. The rich man, on the other hand, had money and did not use it well for God's glory, but for his own self-aggrandizement, for his own well-being and nothing more. Ah, pity, pity the person who uses all of his substance, all of his income, who uses that to help himself. He finds himself more sadly aligned with dives than Lazarus every time. What a blessing it is to be able to share a portion of what God gives us with, with uh, the Lord's church and with the Lord's work in this world and also per personal and private 
acts of, of charity and helping that we see and, and come into contact with every day of our lives, even we here in America. And so, the rich man is in this place of departed spirits in the torment. Lazarus is also in the place of departed spirits. He is also in Hades, but he is in paradise. Now, there's something we must consider further in this story, this parable. When he looked across this chasm, this great gulf that was fixed, he says he recognized Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, next to Abraham's side, a place of blessedness. He said, Father Abraham, let him just dip his finger in some water and come and, and alleviate this torment that I'm in. And Abraham says, it cannot be done. There's this great gulf. It cannot be crossed. People who were here, if they wanted to go there, couldn't. Those who were there, who wanted to, would not come. Who cannot come here. I always think of, and I know you get tired of hearing it, but I don't get tired of telling it, so uh, I think about old Mark Twain. The comment he made about heaven and hell. I tell you, I think it kind of relates to the condition of the natural man. He said, he said he thought he would probably prefer the climate of heaven, but the society of hell. Well, I think he said that because he took neither of them as seriously as, at least as he ought. Um, hell is a very serious place. Your brother Thomas Floyd recently preached on hell, and I appreciate him preaching on that. It's, it's a biblical subject. It's one that needs to be considered. It's one that you and I need to come face to face with. It's a real place from which we have been delivered. We trust by the grace of God. But heaven also is a is a real place. Well now, what about what about died? He turns from himself and he says, Father Abraham, if you if he cannot do that, at least let someone go back and warn my brothers. I have five brothers, and they're in the same shape I'm in. Let them be warned, or they also will come to this place. Now, some have taken this parable to indicate something here of Hades and all this consideration of, of this intermediary place before Christ made his sacrifice as, as somewhat tantamount to purgatory. It's a place where people are temporarily in torment as a, as a purging to purge out of them their wickedness and once they've gone through all of that. Well, of course, that's all spurious. There's nothing in the Bible about all that. And I want you to think about the rich man's request. What is it? What is it really that he's saying here? Well, I think he has a real concern for his family. You know, I think on that and I think about benevolence. And here's a man who thought about his family, cared for his family. And so you and I must not um, imagine that your love for your family meets the requirements of God with regard to the use of your money. Now the Bible says that if a man does not provide for his own household, he has denied the faith. He's worse than an infidel. 
But I'll tell you something. I believe a man who can never think outside his family is just in this case. Like this rich man. All he can think about is himself, his family, those who are closest to him, those who, whom he has a natural affection for. Indeed, that they are the ones that are our first concern, our primary concern. Certainly, we should not allow those nearest to us in our families to suffer at the expense of someone else. But we who fare sumptuously, we, we are able to provide for our families without, without great struggle and even have some left over after that. And if we pour that out on our families, what a sad thing it is. All we can think about is my four and no more. Even as a church, you know, we, if, if all the things that we have ever done here would just be focused on ourselves, what a sad commentary that would be on us. But oh, how grateful I was to see that, that picture of those men building that little frame for a, for a place of worship there in Nairobi and to know that we had a little part in that. And, and, uh, other places that we have, we've been a, a blessing to other people. We must think outside ourselves. We must think of something besides selfishness. Well, I see something else in this. I see, I see in essence, the rich man shaking an accusing finger in God's face. You know what he says? If I had received proper will, I wouldn't be here. And I couldn't help but think of Mr. Lindley and his depiction of, of hell and the things they were saying in hell. And you know what? He was, may have been a little more correct than I imagined. Lord, why, why did you not do something for me? Why did you not help me? You helped up. Why didn't you do this? Um, well, the Bible actually depicts those in hell as being blaspheming God. And I believe that's what the rich man's doing here. He's accusing God. He's saying, if you had just given me a proper warning, I'd not be here, but at least let my brothers get this proper warning. Now, the reason I think that, that this is, this is not a good thing to be said about Dive is Abraham's terse answer to him. He simply says, as I said, very tersely, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. No, no, Father Abraham, no. I, I know that if someone were to go back from the dead, they, they would repent. Well, at least he's acknowledging that there's something from which, of which to repent. He says they would repent. Abraham says this chilling thing to him. He says, no, they wouldn't. They would not be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. If they would not hear the Word of God as it is faithfully preached in whatever context it is in that day in the synagogue, Moses, the prophet, the preaching of the Word of God, in which benevolence, benevolence to the poor is very clearly marked out in, in Scripture. Uh, the proverb says, he that, he that gives to the poor lends to the Lord, and that which He has given him God will never despise. And so we, we, don't, we don't find benevolence as just a New Testament principle. In the Old Testament, they were, they were commanded when they, when they went out and cut their field that two things that they must never do. They must never cut into the corners. They must leave the corners uncut. And anything that fell to the ground that they were cutting, they were not allowed to gather up. 
And so that would be for the poor to come and clean in the corners of the field. And whatever was dropped on, onto the ground, the poor people could come along and, and pick up. And so the story of Ruth tells us of, of, of that one, that woman who came and gleaned in the field of, of Moab. She went and cut up in the corners. She, she picked up the loose parts and, you know, Boaz said, let, let some of the hands full fall on purpose so that her job won't be quite so demanding. And so all throughout the, the, the scriptures even, benevolence to the poor has been set forth. And Abraham says, he, they, they can hear Moses, let them hear the prophets. And if they won't hear them, they wouldn't hear if one rose from the dead. Now that's a pretty startling revelation. You know what? You think if dear old long departed, uh, Aunt Sally were to appear to you one night at the foot of your bed and to you, you need to change your ways about X, Y, or Z. And I, I dare say you'd probably be startled You'd be fearful. You'd probably listen to what she said, but I probably wouldn't be long before whatever Aunt Sally thought you ought to be doing that you weren't doing, not that you were doing, you'd probably go back right to it. Because if God does not work a grace, work a grace in the heart, go couldn't you do what's right. But if God worked a grace, work a grace in the heart, then the, the, the prophets, Moses and the prophets, now to us the apostles, and the, the preaching of the Word of God, will do that. If the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ in which it is said of Him that that though He were rich, yet for your sake He became poor that ye through His poverty might be made rich. If that will not induce a person to give of His material means to, to the benevolent works of God, to the church of God, to the poor in whatever ways that might, if that does not induce them to do that, I dare say Sally wouldn't succeed either. Because see, if God's done a work of grace in our heart, to do the work of God, now, the difference in this and others is that no moral is drawn for us. And we're left to draw the moral point for ourselves. Well, I think we must go back to that 10th verse, to this statement that Jesus made, and say, say that he that is not faithful in the least, how shall he be trusted with that which is greatest? God has given you and me money. Relatively speaking, he's given us lots of money. We fare sumptuously every day. And though we have no poor man laid at our driveway every day. Yet, we always know things of situations. And there's some goals that I want us to, to reach this coming year that I want to talk about springing from this that I'll talk about, about later. Some, some financial goals for us in helping people, helping situations that we know of. May God bless us to take a lesson from the rich man and Lazarus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful this morning word that guides us into all truth. And for this sobering discourse and account of the rich man and Lazarus. Here was this rich man who, right under his nose, 
was a perfect opportunity to share his material wealth. But no, he hoarded it up. Even though he fared sumptuously every day, he would have no heart of compassion for others. He could not think outside the box of himself and of his family. Lord, deliver us from such a thing. Lord, you said that we have Moses and the prophets too. And we have now, we have the Lord Jesus and the apostles. Lord, bless us to hear them. To hear them loudly and clearly. I thank you, Lord. Oh, I thank you that our people at large, the old Baptists in America, have opened up a heart of compassion to help in the spread of the gospel, which is the greatest need of any man. And then of these benevolent works that are also being done. We thank you, Lord, for people like Brother Guna in India whose heart of compassion has caused him to reach out to the, the orphans of his land, to the harders and others in the Philippines who have reached out to the sick and the suffering of that land. Lord, we think of our brethren in Africa who in their penury have reached out to the poor, even among themselves being poor. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bless us to be mindful of them be mindful to help them to be generous with our with our money knowing that we'll have lots left over after we have given graciously after we've given generously that we will still fare sumptuously we will just not fare wickedly help us lord with your wisdom in this in Jesus name amen well We've spoken mostly of money here today, but we could also expand the whole thought as does hymn number 253. It says, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my hands, let them move with the impulse of thy love. All service to God, of course, does not revolve around money. Uh, it revolves around words. It revolves around deeds of kindness. And and uh, it, ta- it, it revolves around thinking outside ourselves, taking meals to people who, who have particular needs, of sending a card, making a call, doing the simple things that are all around us every day of our lives. And we so, we're so prone to get wrapped up in ourselves. May God deliver us from this self-centeredness that consumed dives and was his undoing. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and share with a friend. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord.